and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to yours. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Most people enjoy good courtroom drama, judging by the popularity of the genre in movies and television. And there's been some great ones over the years. Movies like 12 Angry Men, A Few Good Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, a lot of other ones that might be favorites of yours. And then there's those television shows like The Practice and Law and & Order. And the granddaddy of all of these, Perry Mason. <laughs> Some of you have no idea who that is, but those of us of a certain age know who Perry Mason was. And you know, I grew up watching that as a kid. Every episode was pretty much alike. And in every episode, there was always that Perry Mason moment when it looked like all was lost for the defendant, when it looked like he didn't have a chance of not frying, and then at the last moment, at the last moment, there was some new evidence that was introduced. Something happened that all of a sudden just changed it all. This morning, I'd like for you to imagine that you are involved in a courtroom case. That you're involved in the most important legal case of all time. And that you've been chosen to be on that jury of deciding and carefully weighing all the evidence to decide the fate of the accused. The accused has been accused of crimes punishable by death. And so therefore you'll want to very carefully examine the evidence to decide whether or not that person is worthy of that punishment. I'm sure you'll do that especially when I tell you that not only are you on this jury this morning, but you are also the accused. Because what we're going to be considering is the case against mankind and the legal grounds for man's redemption, as well as then what was accomplished with that verdict. I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin this case by looking at where it all begins, and that's with the first man that first man, Adam. In Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, Male and female created he them. God blessed them, and God said unto them, 
Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God made man, and he gave him dominion, rulership, lordship over all of his creation. Man had the complete authority as God first formed, made, and created him. In chapter 2, in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely what? Die. Die. God gave man authority over everything, and he told him that he could freely eat of every fruit of the tree of the, in the whole garden. He could have as many apples as he wanted, in spite of the picture. He could have as many peaches and pears and oranges, and whatever man wanted, he was free to do whatever he, was want, he wanted to do. There was only one law, only one requirement, and that was of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was to not eat of that fruit. That was the only thing man had to do. That was the one law, and the punishment for breaking that law was just as clear, that in the day that he ate it, he would surely die. There's the law. There's the punishment if he breaks the law. But what does man do? What does he do? That serpent comes along, the devil, and he deceives Eve, and he tricks her. And he comes and he questions God's word, and she begins to think about this. We won't go through the, the record and all the detail. And then she leaves out a word, she adds a word, and eventually she changes the word so that the devil can tell her that you won't surely die. God knows that when you do this, that you're going to be just like him. You'll be just as God's, knowing good and evil yourself. And she goes ahead, and she breaks the law, and she gives that to Adam. And he, with his eyes wide open, not tricked, not deceived, no excuse whatsoever, he also eats the fruit thereof. And then there's the consequence to pay. There's that consequence to pay. And God comes to Adam, and he comes to Eve, and he comes to the serpent. And each one of them is given consequences for their action. And Adam's told that because he's broken that, because he's violated that, because he's done the one thing that God told him not to do, that he would die. And that a lot of other things would happen. Everything was going to change. Now, instead of Adam having control over everything, now life was going to be hard for Adam. Now, he was going to work, and by the sweat of his brow, everything would happen, and so forth. That day changed everything. Had Adam not done that, he would have lived forever. Spiritually, he died right on that day. He lost that Holy Spirit, and he lost his connection with God. And at that point on, man was separated and alienated from God. And because of that, also physical death was introduced into the world. 
Sin, sickness, and death all became possible through that one act of Adam and Eve. Everything changes at that time. And the nature of that crime, the nature of that crime was high treason. Because with that, with what Adam did, now Adam no longer is the one over everything, but rather he hands over, he transfers those rights and, and authority that God had conferred upon him over to the adversary. We know that because of Luke chapter 4. You can turn to that. In Luke chapter 4, there's the record of when Jesus Christ was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And the devil comes to him, and there's a number of temptations, but we'll pick it up here with the record in verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of, the time, of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. Jesus Christ didn't say, what are you talking about? He didn't say, what, you know, you can't do that. You, it's not yours to give. Because Jesus Christ knew it was. This was now the authority that the adversary had. The devil was now the one that had the rule over all those kingdoms. And whatever the devil wanted to give to someone, he could. And whatever the devil wanted to take from someone, he could, because he was the God of this world. We won't look at all these verses, but it tells us that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, where he is called the God of this world. And because he's the God of this world, and because he can do this, he has the authority to afflict people. You read the book of Job. And if people read the book of Job, they'll see that it wasn't God who caused all the calamity that happened in, in Job's life. It wasn't God who caused his servants to die and his family to die and his property to be destroyed. It was the devil. And it wasn't God who made Job sick. It clearly says in Job chapter 2, that it was Satan who smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. It was the devil, Satan, who was behind that because he is the one who has the authority, who has the power to make people sick. God only does that which is good. All things good come from God. All things bad come from the devil. Look at Acts, yeah, you can look there, Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, it speaks about Jesus Christ in verse 38. And it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of whom? The devil. The devil. He healed all that were oppressed of the devil. It doesn't say he went around healing all that had been made sick by God. No. He'd be work If sickness came from God, then Jesus Christ would have been working against God every time he went and made somebody sick, made somebody whole. It was the devil that had oppressed people with sickness, and Jesus Christ healed them. It talks, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2. In 2 Timothy, it says that people are taken captive by the devil at his will. 
And if it's his will to just let people be, then he does that. But on the other hand, for the unsaved man, he has the authority to just take him captive, to just ruin his life in any way that he wants. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus Christ, himself likewise took part of the same, and that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is who? The devil. The devil. It can't be any clearer than that. It says that the devil is the one who has the power of death. It's the devil who can do that. It's the devil that kills people. It's the devil that makes people sick. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, it tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Because of what Adam did, because of what that sin involved, the transfer of authority, we are now in the midst of the spiritual battle. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we don't wrestle against even the things that are not necessarily flesh and blood, like some disease, but rather all of that is the devil who is behind it. It is he and his whole kingdom that we are wrestling against. That's all the result of Adam's sin. That was a game changer. And because of that, now we all deal with all of the things around us. That darn Adam, huh? It's all his fault, right? It's all Adam that did this. We didn't do anything wrong, right? Well, there's a little bit more to it, isn't there? Some of you know the rest of the story. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, go, go to Romans chapter 5 first. Romans chapter 5. Verse 12, we see that it wasn't just Adam who's to blame for all that we deal with. He started it all, but there's more to it. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore has by one man, and that's referring to Adam, sin enter into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. If Adam had not sinned, death would not have come about. Neither would sickness, because sickness is simply death in part or in whole. And had it not been for Adam introducing that, sin wouldn't have come into the world, but it didn't stop there. It says, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It wasn't just Adam who sinned. All have sinned. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude, the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. The likeness of Adam's transgression was that high treason. And not everybody did that, but all men have sinned. And all men since Adam sinned, even before there wasn't a law to point it out. 
Sin existed in the world even before the law came. The law pointed out what was sin. And the law pointed out that which was sin because the law showed what the underlying spiritual laws that were already there control. It's just like before they started putting warning labels on a pack of cigarettes, it still was hazardous to your health, right? It didn't become hazardous to your health just because they put that warning label on the pack of cigarettes. It was always there. The warning label just pointed out that if you did this, this is what was going to happen to you. The underlying spiritual laws were always there. They were always there. And the conditions that Adam had set in place by introducing sin into the world, everyone that sinned still was subject to those same consequences that happened when violating a spiritual law. Man just didn't know why he was dying, why he had this cough and why he was dying. It was the law that pointed out that which was right and that which was wrong, the right way and the wrong way, and what was waiting at the end of the road for each path that man took. Now Deuteronomy chapter 28, after the law is given, God tells people that. He tells them what will happen if they obey that law and if they follow it. And he tells them what will happen if they don't follow that law, the consequences that await them. Because there are spiritual laws just as there are physical laws. We understand physical laws. We understand that gravity is a wonderful thing. It keeps everything from floating off into space. We also understand that it can be violated, and if I walk off the cliff, unless I'm Bugs Bunny or the Roadrunner, I'm going to fall to my death, right, if it's a high enough cliff. Yeah. We understand that, and we don't say, well, why did God do that to me? Mm -hmm. We understand that there are those physical laws that control things. And so there are spiritual laws that also control things. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 1, we see the blessings and the cursings of the law in this section. And in verse 1 it says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. If you do the word, if you hearken unto the law, then all of these blessings will be yours. This will be what waits you. And then it goes into a long section of talking about those blessings. You can read it on your own. I'll just hit some highlights from it. In verse 3, it tells us that we're blessed in the city and blessed in the field, that we'll be blessed by the fruit of our bodies and by the fruit of the ground, the fruit of the cattle, and the fruit of the sheep that will be blessed when thou comest in, and blessed when thou goest out. In verse 12, it tells us that the Lord shall open his good treasure, the heaven to give rain unto the land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand, that we will be the ones that will lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. That's true for Israel. That whenever they followed that law, this long, long list of blessings would be theirs. That's what would come of it. And on the other hand, 
They were also told the consequences that they would face, the curse of the law. That's what would come upon them if they broke the law, the violations of it. In verse 15 of chapter 28, it says, But if it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then it goes through the long line of curses. It tells us that the pestilence will cleave unto you, that the Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning. All of these diseases would happen to man if he broke the law. Not that God was the one doing it. When it says the Lord, that's the idiom of permission, and that's in light of the laws that God originally set up. But these things would happen, that there were consequences. You know, it's just like you can be told, what's a healthy physical diet? That if you eat good food that comes from good ground, you eat your spinach and your, you know, carrots and broccoli and all of that, that that will benefit your body. And on the other hand, if you eat nothing but M&Ms and, you know, a bunch of junk, I wouldn't know about it, but um, if you do nothing but that, that you're not going to be healthy, that that's going to have a consequence. And if you really do that, if you eat, you know, nothing but a bunch of junk, then you may have certain physical diseases that would follow that as well. That's the way that the written law is, the blessings and the cursings. It points out what we should eat spiritually and what we shouldn't. What's good for us in our manner of living and what's bad. And those consequences were known as the curse of the law. Look at Romans chapter 1. Sin entered into the world because of Adam. And all men from that time on were born with a sin nature. And in Romans, when you're reading Romans, one of the distinctions that you should be aware of to make is the difference between the usage of the word sin and sins. Sin, when it's in the singular, often refers, and most times, refers not to the individual act that I might commit. It's not, you know, sin talking about me lying or stealing or whatever. But rather, it's referring to the sin nature of man. Whereas sins, in the plural, that refers to the individual offenses. Same thing to recognize when you're reading 1 John, that wonderful book on fellowship. Man's sin, Adam, introduced that sin nature. And were it not for that sin nature, then there would be no sickness. So just by virtue of that sin nature, sickness is related to sin. You understand that? But then we saw in the law that individual sins also could bring about specific sicknesses. So you have sickness as a result of both sin and sins. Sickness and death are a result of both sin and sins. Now, not all sickness comes from sins, but all sickness does come from the sin nature, 
that was introduced into the world, that it wouldn't be there without that. And you read and you see throughout God's Word the close relationship between sin and sickness. You'll see at times like the time when Jesus Christ was questioned by his disciples, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, and Jesus Christ said, neither, because it's not always the case. It's not always that a sickness that somebody has, blindness, whatever the case might be, relates back to a specific sin that they did. But again, it wouldn't have ever even had been a possibility if it hadn't been for what Adam did. You also see not only sin and sickness being closely related, but you also see forgiveness and healing being closely related. And all of that becomes especially significant when we get later on into the accomplished work of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, continuing here and laying forth the evidence against mankind, in verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This section of Romans is setting forth the case of how all men, whether Jew or Gentile, all are without excuse. It wasn't just the Jews, it wasn't just the Israelites, those that had been given the law, that were, you know, to be held accountable, that were guilty. Because even those that were not given the law should have known by the things that are not seen that there was a God behind it, and they had the law written in their hearts. Man, by just the way that God made him, has the ability to recognize things that are right and wrong. That's you know, why even a thief, is indignant when somebody steals from him. No matter how much he thinks it's okay for him to do it, when somebody steals from him, he knows that this isn't right. When somebody, you know, little kids, I had one, that was always looking to see if something was right or wrong, if it was just and fair. Because that's just built within man. So all with are without excuse. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Is, is this piling up for you, the evidence against man? Are you kind of seeing what kind of guy he is and, and just what he's worth? Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, knowing, just like Adam knew, what was right and wrong and what was the consequence of it, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, all fall into this category. This is the nature of man. This is the nature that he's born with because of Adam. 
And all men may not have committed all those individual acts, but this is the kind of fruit of that nature. And all men have sinned. All men have done these things, all of which are worthy of death. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgeth. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you can get away with it? Do you think that you won't have to face that judgment? That's the question that's being posed to man. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And it keeps on going down this list. And then it says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever saith is saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be guilty before God. All the world may be guilty before God. Everyone is worthy of that sentence. So it really doesn't matter, although I told you you were on the jury, what kind of conclusion you've come up to in this case of whether man should be convicted or not. He has been found guilty. He has been pronounced guilty, and he's worthy of death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, We had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in God, but in, in ourselves, but God which raiseth the dead. That was the sentence. That's the sentence that was imposed, the death sentence. We were found guilty of that, and you know what? There's not going to be a Perry Mason moment. There's not going to be a last-minute call reprieving us from the governor. We're going to face that consequence. But thankfully, we're not left there. So man was found guilty before God, beginning with Adam's sin and all the sins of all men, right up to you and me, all the way since that time, all men have sinned. And all men are worthy of death, and all men have that sentence of death. In fact, that sentence was carried out. But then, the very next moment, Everything changes. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. We all were worthy, and we all found ourselves, as it tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, to be dead. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in those trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We all followed that course set out by the adversary. Just like Adam and Eve walked right into that, 
We all followed blindly those same courses. In verse 3, among whom, did I just read that? Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. We were dead in sins, and God raised us from the dead in Christ. We are identified with Jesus Christ in everything that he did. And when Jesus Christ was taken and crucified, we were crucified with him. And when he died, we died with him. But then when God raised him, we were raised with him. We have that identification. He was not only our substitute, but we are also identified with him. And through what God did in Christ, we were made alive. Look at Romans chapter 3. We're made alive. And although man is guilty because of what Christ did, he is now not guilty. Not because of what we did or what we are deserving of, but completely because of what Jesus Christ did for us. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what we know about man. But verse 24, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Propitiation. Um, normally people tell you that, that you've often heard that that's payment. It's a bit more, uh, if you look up the word, propitiation means expiation. That makes it a lot clearer to you now, doesn't it? No. No, doesn't. <laughs> Unless you've got a much better vocabulary than I do. Um, it is not just a payment, but also the atonement. It is the reconciliation that's involved in that. It's not just his paying the price, but also what's accomplished with it, that it is an atonement, a reparation, a repairing of what was broken by Adam so that we can be reconciled to God. Where did I leave off? <laughs> Nobody knows. Right. Verse 26. Okay. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Jesus Christ was just. Jesus Christ was the one man that completely obeyed God. The one man who never broke any of God's law. The one who lived a flawless life and the only one that could truly be found completely innocent before God. And so it was his innocent blood that was shed. And with that, with that innocent blood that was shed, all men became justified. He was just, and because of that, we have been made justified. It's just as if we hadn't sinned. That's what justified means, although we did. Because he took our place. Look at Romans chapter 5. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly, those that so were guilty, those that did all of those things that we saw early in Romans. For scarcely, verse 7, for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We are justified by his blood. We've been justified through the blood that Jesus Christ shed. And it is in that shed blood, in his shedding of blood, that we were justified and that we've been made righteous. It's in that shedding of blood that we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed to be bought back. You know, I looked at the different, some different places where redeemed is used in the Bible. One place that it talks about being redeemed is in, in the Old Testament, if a Hebrew person sold themselves into slavery to a foreigner, they couldn't, a Hebrew could not have a Hebrew has a slave, but they could sell themselves into slavery to a foreigner. If he did that, though, somebody that cared about him, his family, his friends, they could come and pay the price and redeem him from that slavery, buy him back. He sold himself, they'd buy him back. Man sold himself to the devil. Jesus Christ bought us back. He redeemed us. Verse 9. Much more being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Skip down to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, talking about Adam, Judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The free gift came upon all men unto justif justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinner, by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. This is the legality of our redemption. That just as it was one man that introduced sin into the world, and all men came unto that, by one man, Jesus Christ, all men received justification. But of course, it goes on to say in Romans that that gift, that free gift of righteousness, is so, in reality, out of proportion to what the act of Adam was. Because everybody sinned, but not everybody, after Jesus Christ, led flawless lives. Mm -hmm. But the magnitude of what God accomplished for Jesus Christ made it so that we all were made righteous. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Man's redemption is on the most legal grounds that ever were. It's the most legal legalism that you could possibly have. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 18 it says, For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We weren't bought back with a, a sum of money. We weren't bought back in that manner. The price that was paid for us was the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He is our Passover Lamb, as it tells us. Look at Romans chapter 6. All of this, again, is now seeing the legal grounds of our redemption. Just as sure as man was found guilty, the redemption, the legality of our redemption, of our justification, is all because of what Christ accomplished. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man, that's that old nature, that nature that came from Adam. And remember, not just that nature comes from Adam, but all that comes with that. That with that sin nature comes that consequences that come with it. That that old man is crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We shouldn't be subject in serving that old nature and carrying out the individual sins that come from that. Verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ freed us from sin. When he paid that price, he freed us from that sin nature and from sin that sin no longer has to have the dominion over us. And because sin doesn't have the dominion over us, the adversary doesn't have the dominion over us in that same act. The unsaved man is still in that same situation that the adversary, the devil, can do with him as he wills. But God's people, the saved, the born again, God's sons, are no longer subject to that. We have been rescued out of the kingdom of the devil. We've been set at liberty. That's our rights to claim. And not only are we freed from sin, but we are freed from the consequence of sin. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, in verse 13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. That was the consequence of sin, the curse of the law. And it says, Christ has redeemed us from that curse of the law, having been made, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. What was the curse of the law? That which we read back in Deuteronomy. All of that, all of those curses that are described in there are the curse that comes from that law. Was sickness a big part of that? Yeah. Absolutely. We saw that sickness was all through those cursings of the law. So if Christ made us free from the curse of the law, he made us free from all of those sicknesses at the same time. Again, you see this close relationship between sin and sickness and forgiveness and healing. 
that in that same act, when Jesus Christ paid the price and made us righteous, at the same time, he took away the curse of the law and we, he accomplished for us the right to perfect health. He accomplished his physical healing for us at the same time. In Psalm 103, one of the great verses, great sections of Scripture, where you see this twofold accomplishment and how closely the sin and sickness and healing and forgiveness are, are linked. In Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. God forgives all of our sins, and who healeth all thy diseases. He forgives all of our iniquities, he heals all of our diseases who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. That was true even in the Old Testament, that God was willing to forgive all sins and to heal all diseases. But for us, it's an accomplished reality, an accomplished reality so much greater because of what Jesus Christ did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The Passover was instituted at the time that God first brought his people out of captivity, when he rescued them out of captivity under, by the hand of Moses. And there were a lot of things, the different plagues that happened leading up to that, culminating in the tenth and worst one, when the angel of death destroyed the firstborn of every household. But God covered and protected his people, and he did that with the Passover sacrifice. They were all instructed that they would take that lamb, they'd choose it on the tenth of Nisan, they would prepare it. And then on the 14th of Nisan that they would sacrifice and have that Passover meal. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to paint it on the, all around their door. The top post, the side post. They were to paint that blood on their doorpost from there. And that when the angel of death saw that, they had to pass over that house. And they were also to take the flesh of that lamb and eat it. And he gave very specific instruction of how that was to be done. But then as they did that, they acquired physical wholeness. So much so that it says that at the time that they went out from Egypt, that whole big group of them, estimated at about two and a half million people, that there was not one feeble among them. Two and a half million people, not one feeble among them. Because God's that big. There were other sacrifices that were done throughout the Old Testament. There was the Day of Atonement, and there were other sacrifices for sins. And all of these things were done as a teaching to foreshadow what would be accomplished in full by Jesus Christ. Once a year, 
they would do the Passover meal, remembering what was done. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the people. But it talks in Hebrews how all of this was done once and for all time in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. That one-time act, that one-time act when he gave his life, in that, man was made righteous for all time. Man was given the right to healing. And it talks about that in, in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, where it talks about this twofold accomplishment of Jesus Christ and what it means to us. No, 2 Peter chapter 2. And in verse 14, that's not right either. Where, what am I looking for? 1 Peter 2.24. 2.24, thank you. Okay, didn't have it in my notes. Thank you. 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, stripes ye were healed. Jesus Christ has that Passover lamb pay the price for our sins, and by the stripes that he bore, we were given physical healing. That's a pastime accomplishment for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about the memorial that we have of Christ's act, the memorial of communion. And communion is that recognition, that remembrance of what Jesus Christ did. In verse 23 it says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do ye in remembrance of me. This is on that last night that he's with his disciples before he's taken and arrested in the garden to be tried unfairly, where he is found guilty in that very unjust trial. And then when he is subsequently beaten, tortured, and crucified. And as he was beaten, as his body physically was broken, we received that healing. And here on this evening, before he goes through all that, he takes this bread and holding it up, he tells them that this bread represents his body which was broken for them. That bread is the symbol of what Jesus Christ did in his broken body. He goes on. Verse 25. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you do show the Lord's death till he come. That cup, that cup of wine represented the shed blood. And that shed blood that earned man's righteousness, that earned us the remission and forgiveness of sins. Those two parts are what are represented in that communion. The bread representing the physical healing through the broken body. The wine representing his shed blood and the righteousness that is ours, the remission and forgiveness of sins because of it. And those two are so closely entwined. Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment, should be the text to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The reason why many were weak and sickly, the reason why many died, was because they did not carefully consider what was represented in that. They did not carefully consider and remember what Jesus Christ accomplished. When we go to God's Word, when we examine it carefully, when we examine what we have been given and who we now are because of Christ's work, then we recognize not just that we were unworthy, but that he now made us worthy. We recognize that in spite of how worthy of, guilt, of death we were, in spite of all of our faults and failures, despite of everything that Adam did and all that came into the world because of that, that all has changed. Adam was a game changer by his act. Jesus Christ was a much greater game changer because of what he did. And because of what he did, Death no more has power over us. We will be raised from the dead or gathered together alive, depending on how quickly he comes, I guess. But we have conquered death, and we have conquered that sickness because of Christ, and we are now righteous before him. When we do the communion service, and we will be doing it, do that with the full recognition of what is ours because of what he did. I'd like to close here with a poem. A couple of people have written poems lately. I, in part, was inspired by that, in part because I couldn't find a poem already written that quite said what I wanted to say. God sent his only begotten Son to set the captives free. Jesus healed the brokenhearted and caused the blind to see. He forgave and loved everyone, whoever they might be. He performed the greatest miracles in all of history. For these acts of love and grace, he was reviled and despised. Betrayed by one of his chosen twelve, and by another he was denied. They spit and mocked and tortured him, as he was unjustly tried. Jesus gave his life for men like this, as on the cross he died. Jesus paid the price for all men's sins, not his, but ours instead. 
God gave the gift of eternal life when he raised Christ from the dead. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ who is the head. Now we live as Christ ambassadors serving in his stead. God bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.